Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to episode 78 of Trundlebed Tales. And today we have a very special guest, William Anderson, and we're going to be talking about him and the selected letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder. But before we get to that, we've just got a little housekeeping. And I just want to make sure everyone knows that I am your host, Sarah Utop. I am the force behind Trundlebed Tales, where we bring Laura Ingalls Wilder, One Room Schools, Children's Literature, and Social History to life. I hope that you enjoy the program today. And if you have a question or a comment, you can call in at 714-242-5253. That's 714 714- Two four two five two five three, or toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. That's toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. And if sometime you're away from your computer during a live episode, you can also listen to it when the show is actually on the air. And if you want, you can drop into our chat room. It is now open. And if you don't uh, catch an episode live, remember you can find the archives a couple ways. You can listen to it directly on my website. You can go to the Blog Talk radio page. And you can also download it for free from iTunes where it's available under the podcast. And all iTunes users, we're always looking for comments, so that's how other people find us. And remember, you can find me all over social media at Trendlebed Tales. And I think that's about all of our housekeeping. So let's get back to our guest today. Welcome to the program, Bill. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, good morning, Sarah. Nice to be on the program. We've talked about this for a long time, and finally it's happening. And about myself, um, I'm based in the state of Michigan, and uh, I've had a long career in education, and simultaneously have done a lot of writing for many different magazines and then I segued into books and uh, have written over 25 books of nonfiction and a good bulk of those are about the Ingalls and the Wilders and their home sites and various aspects of Little House. Well, how did you first get involved in researching Laura Ingalls Wilder? Because that was, um, a, you were really sort of the first person to go out there and actually research history about the family and put it out there. So how did you get involved? Well, I was a, a questioning youth. I guess that's the only way to describe it. And um, 
I was introduced, along with my classmates in third grade, to the Little House books. Our teacher read Little House on the Prairie to us, and then she encourages to read other books in the series. We did a lot of hands-on um, activities with the book, and uh, I really got fascinated with American history and American frontier. I had uh, already been interested in Abraham Lincoln and presidents and the Civil War and so on. But uh, Little House on the Prairie made me fascinated with the westward expansion movement in the USA. So I read the other Little House books. The next year we heard the book Farmer Boy. And I realized by that time that these were based on a factual experience of the Ingalls family and of the Wilders. And when I finished the series of books, uh, These Happy Golden Years, and I found the book On the Way Home, I learned more about the real family. But going to the library, there was literally nothing there other than the original books. And I remember one day I was looking in the reference section, a book called The Junior Book of Authors. And that was the I have first that time, book. Yeah, that was the first time I read anything uh, about the later lives of the Wilders. Laura Ingalls Wilder had submitted a an author sketch to that reference book. And the World Book Encyclopedia, which we had at home, was very disappointing because they would answer most of my questions about everything. But all they had was about a six-inch short article about Laura Ingalls Wilder and her picture. So really slim pickings at that time for people that were interested in the rest of the story. There was just very, very little. So I, as I said, being very questioning, started to follow up on leads here and there. Uh, as a young boy, I wrote to Rose Wilder Lane, and of course that was exciting when I got a letter back from her, and we corresponded oh, six or seven times uh, and uh, for about two years until her death in 1968. So, um, Let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about this latest book of yours, The Selected Letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Now, why was this an important book? Well, I think it is an important book because it's getting quite skinny as far as the unpublished words of Laura Ingalls Wilder. So much has been printed, reprinted, uh, compiled, and there just isn't much left that, that uh, readers haven't already experienced. And I knew that there was a large body of letters because uh, the research I did for some of my other books, particularly Laura Ingalls Wilder, A Biography, I had to rely extensively on the letters that are still remaining for information about her later life. And as you know, uh, for such a prolific writer in her old age, she really did not keep much of a record of her life during her um, 
middle years and her years as a farm wife. I suppose she was just too busy. So we don't know much about um, what happened in her own words on Rocky Ridge Farm in Mansfield, Missouri, except through uh, gleaning facts from the letters she wrote. So uh, as long as 20 years ago, I had the strong feeling that eventually there should be a book of Wilder's letters. And every time I discovered a new one, every time someone shared their letter with me, I would simply slide it into a file folder with a date on it and put it in my file cabinet. So I had uh, about 60 file folders with varying amounts of letters included. So essentially the collecting and the uh, the collating happened over time and all I needed to do was pull all that collection out of my file cabinet and begin to decide which letters should be included in this book. Well, I've really been looking forward to this, especially because the letters really are how we know about that kind of middle portion of Laura's life and it's one of the ones... Uh, as someone who grew up on the farm, that I just find the most interesting is, is Laura's life as a farm woman. And I just, I, I've been really excited about this because she really didn't leave any diaries. So this was sort of the closest we have with these letters. Um, oh. It's true. Uh, she kept diaries, it seemed, only when she took a trip. She kept uh of course, the letter she wrote to Almanzo from San Francisco, they made a book in themselves called West from Home, wonderful book about 1915 and her trip to California. And then she kept a very spotty, brief uh, diary of the trip she and Almanzo made back to South Dakota in 1931. She did the same thing in 1938, so it seemed that travel motivated her to keep a sketchy record of what they saw and what they did. Yeah, it 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 seems like it's like that with a lot of people that, you know, the everyday stuff people don't write down. They write down the uh, extraordinary. Like um, one of the examples I always pull out when I'm encouraging people to write down stuff is uh, everybody in the ancient world who – uh, read was able to write, um, but they and they all used quill pens. But there's absolutely, for you know, a long, long time, no description on how you actually cut a pen because everybody knew how to do it. So they don't talk about exactly the the way they did it or styles. And it's that everyday stuff I think people are interested in later, but people get this idea in their heads that it's what's novel to them that's worth keeping a record. So um, it's kind of a a usual thing, though. I think it's too bad in Laura's case especially. Uh, So you said you used a lot of the letters that you yourself had collected. Did you also use collections in various other museums, or are these mainly ones that you've gotten yourself? Oh, yes. The prime repository, of course, is the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library, which you're very familiar with, Mm -hmm. in West Branch, Iowa. And that's where the bulk of the material in this book 
came from because uh, in 1980, Roger McBride, who was Rose Wilder Lane's heir, he placed the bulk of his holdings at the Hoover Library. And that has spawned all sorts of studies and books and articles by scholars. So it was a a wonderful thing for scholarship that um, Roger placed all that material at the Hoover. And uh, it's gotten heavy usage through the years. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the first people to use that collection and it was a real bonanza to read these letters and see all the other material that is there. And Wilder's letters are literally scattered all over the United States because she wrote to so many of her fans. And those fans saved the letters. We're getting a, a sort of a resurgence these days by children who wrote to her in the 30s and 40s and 50s and their parents are perhaps they're gone, and that's been a treasured family item over the years. So these letters are now being donated to the museums, which is a very nice thing to do, and shared in that way. Well, it really, uh, I, I think putting it the Hoover was the very best thing they could have done, because for those of you who don't know, that's about 12, 12 miles away from me. So I get to do your home away from home. It is. It is. Actually, I got to get over there. They have a new uh, exhibit right now on the 1920s. So I've got to get over and see that. But yes, it's it's a great thing. It's a wonderful place. And I'm looking forward to being there in September to speak. And uh, I haven't been there in quite a long time, but. I've always thoroughly enjoyed the location of it and the little town of West Branch. And after reading so intently for a couple hours, you need to get out in that beautiful prairie grassland and take a walk and breathe some fresh air, and it's a good place to be. Uh, Just briefly, if you haven't ever been there, uh, West Branch is the birthplace of Herbert Hoover, and it uh, is both a national park and a national um, library, a presidential library as part of the National Archives Association. So there's the archive there that holds the materials, and it's surrounded by, I think it's 76 acres, uh, which maintains a couple of streets of West Branch, the birthplace cottage, the recreation of his father's blacksmith shop, and then uh, the the graves, which are just lovely. You stand up at the top of the hill and you look back to the birthplace, and you stand on the back porch of the birthplace. You look up and see the graves on the hill. It's just so nice. Uh, and then they have a small area of nut trees and then just tons of prairie land, which you can walk through. So it is a wonderful place to get to, to go visit. So... And I am very much looking forward to you being there uh, this September. So, I it'll be nice uh, to be back there. Yes, and uh, I am. I, I think that'll be just a um, really great thing uh, for the museum too. And interestingly enough, the current director, Tom Schwartz, I had met him years ago because I was doing some articles on Lincoln, and he was the director at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield. So now he's jumped over to Hoover, 
so it'll be uh, good to talk to him again. Yes, and he has done a really nice job over there, so uh, I'm sure it, it'll be great to um, for you to catch up. Okay, so back to the letters. You had this collection of letters. How did you pick which letters could you include? Because there are so many of them that are available, you, you certainly couldn't do them all. And also, it um, having read a lot of her fan letters, the questions and then her answers tended to be a little bit repetitive. So how did you pick which things to put in? Well, let's start with the fan mail. Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder started getting fan mail within a month of the publication of Little House in the Big Woods, and it just continued to spiral. She got more and more and more as the books uh, were published and... um, when they were finished in the 40s, people would read all eight books and then want to contact her, find out the rest of the story, ask questions. So her fan mail got to be extremely heavy. And I think what she did was devise a system of replying. She'd make little notes on the envelope of the writer about a particular question that they had asked or something they wanted to know. And then when she uh, would write the response, she had sort of a formulaic way of responding, which was very warm and friendly and appreciative. And then she would answer what particular questions they had. Usually they dealt with what happened to such and such characters in her books, um, what happened to certain objects that she mentioned repeatedly in her books, Um, and she would tell that Paz Fiddle was in the State Historical Society Museum of South Dakota, and and so on. So they tended to be quite, uh, as you said, repetitive. Harper and Brothers released a um, four-page brochure about the books, including a few photographs of Laura Ingalls Wilder and a little biographical. And sometimes she included that... uh, uh, brochure in her mail as well because many people ask for her picture and she really didn't have that many photographs to send out so she would refer a school or a library to Harper and Brothers for a photograph and would satisfy the need for a picture with this brochure so her letters were always very friendly and uh, wonderful but they were quite formulaic, so I had to pick out a sampling. And I picked out some of the longer letters in the earlier years when she wasn't so burdened with mail and some of the more interesting responses to her readers as examples of the thousands that she actually did answer. So did you have a favorite letter that you've included? Uh, to the fans or just in general? Well, how about either one? I think uh, one of my favorite letters was an early one that she wrote to a class in Tipton, Iowa. She corresponded with it several times. And she couldn't answer. Usually she'd get a package of maybe 30, 35 letters that each child had written. 
and she would write a, a, a letter to all the class, so she wasn't writing 30 answers. And then she uh, would write within these letters to Tipton, she would write, well, the name of the child and answer their question and uh, go on and in that way, in a composite fashion, satisfy all their their queries about her family. And that was back in 1934 and 1935, before the mail got so heavy. Sometimes she would get 50, 60 letters a day. Her birthdays, she would be inundated with greetings from all over the world, really. So it got to be pretty staggering. And as she got into her late 80s, she had to taper off on the um, responses that she wrote to people. Well, it's always good to get a a shout-out to Iowa. And actually, Tipton is also right down the road from me because I keep telling you people Iowa is the best place to be. It's a great state and so beautiful and green at this time of year, and I love driving across it. And when people say, oh, I'm on the way to Colorado, let's drive through Iowa at night so we don't have to be bored by cornfields, I I realize they don't know what they're missing. No. Well, Iowa tends to be gently rolling hills. People think of it as being yeah, flat. I know. Uh, yeah, but we're rolling hills. Illinois is flat. You want flat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Truly. And Iowa has a kind of a green that is, defines green and a beautiful blue sky, and it's just a really gorgeous state okay well um so that was kind of the the fan letters were there many family letters to include in the collection the chief family letters were between laura and her daughter rose wilder lane and they corresponded extensively from probably the time rose left home until the late 1950s when Laura died. And uh, a lot of those letters are non-existent now, but the letters that were preserved within the family particularly are the ones that Rose and Laura exchanged during the writing of the Little House books because it's no longer a secret or surprise to anybody that um, Rose really assisted in the uh, Little House book. She served as the in-house editor and was a good advisor. And being so experienced in publishing and writing fiction herself, she was a a great asset to Laura, who came on to this career of writing the Little House novels when she was 65. So she had some learning to do. And she did uh, learn as she went, but Rose was was her chief advisor. So we learn a lot about the composition of the books and their uh, debates about how to handle material. And it's very interesting for people that are interested in literary analysis and literary process to read that collection of letters. The biggest chunk is from 1936 through 1939. So that, in a way, is a book within a book telling how the Little House books evolved. So uh, looking at the letters that that don't focus so much on Laura's life as a writer, uh, 
What do the letters you found tell us about Laura and Almanzo's relationship? Well, I think we know that from the last Little House books, how compatible they were. They loved horses. They were they were both from farming families, and um, they were a great yin and yang. Uh, I think that they had a very idealized marriage in these happy golden years, but it was was ideal. They just seemed to be a very workable team in the business of farming. They enjoyed the same things and enjoyed each other. And this comes through in her letters to Almanzo from San Francisco, published in West from Home. She missed him and wished she, he had come along to enjoy the experience of California, but she wrote him frequently so he could share in her pleasure of that visit to San Francisco and the World's Fair. And later on, whenever she was away from home, she also wrote to him and kept him apprised as to what she was doing and what she was seeing. So in that antiquated era, that was the equivalent of us sending a Facebook message or an email now. We have such instantaneous communication. But Laura kept in touch with Almanzo with a daily postcard or a letter and uh, allowed him to share in her life when she was away from the farm. And those letters indicate a very, very uh, close, companionable marriage. People think of Laura primarily, well, as a little girl pioneer and a writer, but she was also a businesswoman. She worked, for example, as a farm loan officer. Did the letters shine light on her non-working or non-writing work life? Yes, as you said, she was a businesswoman, and I always have said she was a working wife before that term became known because. Uh, the farm on Rocky Ridge was never particularly productive. It was a nice place to live. Uh, they could raise fruit if they had a good year, some limited crops. Mostly the Ozark country they discovered was dairying country and, of course, poultry, which she was an expert in, and fruit. Uh, but you can't live on apples and, and milk and a garden. So at all times, the Wilders had other money-making jobs to keep that farm afloat. Sometimes as many as three people, Laura Rose and Almanzo, were contributing to keeping Rocky Ridge Farm going. And Laura started earning money by uh, selling eggs and butter in Mansfield, and when they moved into the little village of Mansfield in 1898, uh, she kept an occasional boarder. Mr. Craig from the bank boarded with them, became a good friend. And later when the Bluebird Railroad, which was a spur from Mansfield to Ava, Missouri, was being built, a friend of theirs, Mr. Quigley, was the um, the uh, overseer of that construction job. And he lived with them, and uh, she didn't run a boarding house, but she fed some of the railroad officials that came into town and Mr. Quigley, so she served some meals, not on a big scale, and very occasionally, 
And then in the early 1900s, she started her country journalism career. Very limited at first, but when she became affiliated with the Missouri Ruralist, she became a semi-regular contributor to that uh, publication, which had a very hefty circulation. And she would make 5 $10 a column or an article. So that added to the family coffers. And Almanzo was the town drayman, delivery man, and also delivered kerosene and oil and linseed oil and other products for a company. So as I say, they all contributed to the family income, including Rose, after she left home and became a career woman. So she had a good uh, uh, potential for her later job as secretary-treasurer of the Mansfield Farm Loan Association, and that required a lot of correspondence, record-keeping, and um, communications with some of the clients that wanted loans in that area. So she knew new business on a small scale, and obviously was very adaptable and intelligent and could uh, fit in most any mode that that required writing. I always uh, like that she was the farm loan officer because my grandparents had one of those loans here in Iowa, and I always think it's a nice little connection there. It is, and I think they did a lot for... Um, farm families, because I know when the Wilders first came to Mansfield uh, and took out the loan for Rocky Ridge Farm, the interest rates were quite high. The banks Mm -hmm. could, uh, you know, I guess there wasn't regulations. They paid a very high interest rate. And then the the, um, this organization still exists called Farm Credit Bureau, Farm Credit, I Mm -hmm. think now. And that enabled these struggling farmers to get quite low-interest loans and um, expand their farms or improve their farms. And Laura was all for that because, um, as I say, they had paid quite hefty uh, interest rates on their first loan for Rocky Ridge Farm. Well, I could talk a while on interest rates, but I won't. So uh, we were – so – Laura took several trips later in her life, uh, and you know some fans may not know about them. As you said, there was the West from Home letters, uh, and you mentioned earlier a couple trips back to South Dakota. Have you included letters from them in this collection? I have. Some of those uh, letters from, well, all of the letters and correspondence from her 1931 trip to South Dakota are included in a book called Little House Traveler. So I included just a sampling of those and a sampling of the West from Home letters just as bridge material to show her evolution as a writer because the least productive part of the book as far as content are the early years. There wasn't much available for me to include in this book of the years 1894 up till maybe 1930 or so. Pretty sketchy. So at some point or the other, a lot of papers were were tossed out, burned, or thrown out, or whatever. 
there's a lot of missing from the early years, which is too bad. Yes, but it's to be expected. People are terrible about keeping track of their own histories. They really are. Well, what confuses me is on some parts of the Wilder story, they saved everything very religiously, and then other parts of it are pretty skimpy. So there's no rhyme or reason to uh, the Wilder's pattern of saving papers. Now, there was just literally nothing, correspondence-wise, that I could ever find from Almanzo's family to Laura and Almanzo, just very, very little. And Hmm. most of the correspondence from Laura's family to Laura and Almanzo is gone. It's missing. So there must have been some periodic purges of old papers. But then on other eras, as I say, Laura kept things very, very significantly. And then I tell in the preface of this book that um, a lot of her letters to her family in South Dakota were obviously thrown out and destroyed when the Ingalls home in DeSmet was emptied and when Carrie Ingalls Swansea's home in Keystone was emptied because there would have been decades of letters that Laura sent to her family in South Dakota, which would certainly have been a bonanza for us to have to know what their lives were like in Missouri, but those letters are just non-existent. Well, it it just was such a, a terrible loss when they cleaned out that house. And I, I, I can't really blame them, I guess, because I see people clean out houses that way all the time. You just get overwhelmed and nobody wants to deal with it. So you don't even look at what you're throwing away. Mm-hmm. But I think that has led to to so many really important things getting lost, not just for, for famous people, but for you know, average people. So truly, and I think it's, also I, I look at the New England authors, for instance, the transcendentalists, the people that were writing in the 1800s. They saved everything they wrote, but on the other hand, they had families that grew up in that literary tradition and realized the importance and took that responsibility of preserving that literary and family history. Well, the Ingalls family didn't have anybody really to look after their remnants and their papers and so on. So other hands had to step in and they just had they had a job to do to clear out this house. Mm-hmm. And they just plain had to do it. And there was just nobody around from the family. There were no descendants. So I think that played a hand in it. And Rose, um, after her mother's death in 1957, evidently from what she said, she destroyed papers in the Rocky Ridge farmhouse because she did not know what was going to happen there. She was anxious to leave. And I think that she did a spotty purge of the most visible or available papers or letters that she wanted to clear out before she went back to Connecticut. Yes, 
I mean, and that was a, another loss. And it really, you just really kind of wonder what what was there. But, of course, there's no well, way to... Well, it's, it's too bad because I know that Laura and Rose corresponded extensively in the 1940s and 50s and those letters are just gone I'm wondering if Rose felt that I'm leaving here, I'm not ever coming back speaking of Rocky Ridge Farmhouse and this notion of making this into a museum is a possibility but I don't want people milling through personal letters I wrote to my mother or something like that she might have felt that she needed to uh, get rid of those, but she was not very systematic about it because she left quite a few things, including the manuscripts for the books, still in the farmhouse. And she could easily have thrown those out, too. But she didn't. So I guess we should be thankful, I guess, what we do have. You know, I always have. say that. We have to be happy what remains and the structures that remain where the Ingalls and Wilders live. So there's more to be happy about than grouse about what isn't. Though, you know, um, people a lot of times will come up to me and say, uh, aren't, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you have wanted to go back in time and meet Laura? And I don't know that that would really be such a great thing because she'd, I've had to have those conversations with people where I know everything about their life and they know nothing about you, and it's not a comfortable conversation. Uh, but if I could go back in time, I would love to go back and, like, when they are starting to pitch out the stuff for the Third Street house and say, um, I'll buy that. <laughs> Bring that Well, forward at that time, I think you know the story, and I mentioned this in the preface to the letters, compilation that one room in the upstairs of the Ingalls home was set aside from the renters as being where the Ingalls belongings were stored and in 1946 when this uh, cleaning out was done that would have been just the most despicable bunch of old musty junk and it would be something that people would just want to get rid of and that's what they did because the people that now own the house wanted access to that room of course and Carrie had just died and she had started arrangements to get those valuable things out of the house and uh, have a friend of hers help do it because she was on the other side of the state and Carrie died and this friend just had to take it upon herself to do the job and she did save some things out of the the room. The big oversized portraits of Pan Ma, uh, she didn't let those go to the town dump. And those ended up in Pier at the, at the State Historical Society. And a few other things. One volume of Mary's uh, embossed print Bible was saved. But I think just piles of old magazines and newspapers which would be historical now, just look like stuff that should be disposed of, and old musty quilts and bedding and pillows and old clothing and things like that. It was strictly junk at the time. 
Well, but and that's I, the other, and that's the other thing is that people, you always think when you're putting something away that it, it will, it sort of stays frozen in your mind like it was when you put it away. But a lot of things don't put, don't age well. Um, no, especially if you yeah. haven't taken special care to take care of them, and and you know the upper floor of a house in the Midwest that has been unheated. you know unheated and unventilated. Really, I yes. mean, it was it, it probably was in pretty bad shape. But if I could go back in time, I'd buy that before I'd go meet Laura because I think we'd get yeah, more out. Yeah, I of wish it. that. Uh... Aubrey Sherwood had been aware of all that because he was a few blocks away in the DeSmet News and very historically minded and knew the um, value of the Ingalls family story and the books and was corresponding regularly with Laura. If he had just known about this, he could have come on the scene and preserved it because even in 1946, he knew this was important history. And... uh, Unfortunately, a few days after the clean-out, the lady that was in charge did come into the DeSmet News office and, and said, oh, Aubrey, probably made a big mistake here. You know, we sent all these Ingalls things out to the dump, and, but it was too late. Well, sadly, that happens, that you realize. That happens. <laughs> yeah. Right, when there's no interested party. Um, now, uh, one of the things that I'd like you to address, because fans say this all the time, that Laura always answered all her fan letters. Uh, did you find that to be true? She did, uh, I think until the, the, maybe the mid, about 1955, mid-50s. A lot of the people did not have her address, so they wrote to her in care of Harper and Brothers. And finally, when the mail load got just so intense and she wasn't feeling well and she was in her late 80s, Harper and Brothers answered some of the mail directly in New York and maybe would send some promotional material or a composite letter that she wrote about her life. And that took a lot of the burden off her. But still, when she got mail delivered directly to her, because her address was getting quite well known, she would, if she felt like it, continue to send short replies to people, maybe up until about 1955. But um, she really wasn't able in the last year or so of her life. Well, it, I'm sure, was basically a full-time job. It was, and uh, people that I've interviewed in Mansfield no longer around, often would mention whenever I'd come out here to visit Mrs. Wilder, she was usually sitting here at the dining room table answering her fan mail. And the neighbor boys would bring the mail up to her, and they always remarked about the big stacks of letters and presents that people would send to her. And uh, a lot of people sent her boxes of candy. So when the... uh, Jones boys would come up, they oftentimes got to share in the candy or take a box of candy <laughs> home with them, which they liked. So, um, 
one of the things that Laura put in a lot of her letters, and and I honestly think when she it was when she uh, couldn't think of anything else to say, she'd put in a recipe for uh, her gingerbread as one I've seen most, and um, occasionally some other things. Have you uh, included the recipe letters in the book? I included the recipe for gingerbread in the correspondence that she had with Clara Weber, who established the Laura Ingalls Wilder Room at the Pomona Public Library. And when that library room was dedicated, they served the gingerbread recipe. So it seems to vary from recipe to recipe about some of the contents of it, or ingredients, I should say. But I used that 1950 recipe that was um, sampled by the guests at the library dedication. And it was uh, later requested by the Hornbook magazine, who published it. So Laura's gingerbread became kind of the uh, the um, food of fashion to serve at any event connected with her. Uh, another topic that uh, uh, you mentioned in the little description about the book was um, a little bit was about the TV show. That uh, even though that happened after Laura died, a lot of fans have come to know it through the TV show. And you actually found a letter where Laura talked about a possibility of a TV show. Well, she didn't particularly talk about it, but. Her editor at Harper and Brothers, Ursula Nordstrom, mentioned that when TV was getting very popular in the 1950s, there wasn't much geared for children. And she said to Laura's agent, why don't you represent Mrs. Wilder's books as possible television fair? So Laura did give her agent, George By the okay to, you know, probe into that form of media. Of course, it took 20 years before it actually happened. But at least she, the idea of a television series had been suggested to her. And she had also authorized uh, different radio programs to do uh, adaptations from her books. So she was familiar with the media of her time, and uh, passing thought, maybe one of my books will be on television because of her editors suggesting it. Well, that makes me wonder, and and I did not warn you I was going to ask this, but did Laura have a television? I haven't seen one at Rocky Ridge, but... No, she didn't like it either. Evidently, she saw it at at some friend's house or something, and and she said she really didn't care for television. Um, She used her radio a lot. And um, on that idea of adaptation, she was very meticulous about the radio scripts that were adapted from her books. And in one case, she... um, wouldn't allow it to proceed unless some changes were made. She said, this is not like my book, and children will read my book and then hear this, and they'll wonder which is true. So she was pretty much a stickler for keeping any kind of adaptation true to her books. So I'm sure that the television series would not have pleased her at all. 
I I think that is probably true for a number of reasons. Yes. Uh, I also had one more question I should have asked you up above, but I uh, didn't get to it. Uh, is this collection really uh, mostly letters that Laura wrote specifically, or are there letters in here that other family members wrote, like, for instance, um, Mary? You know, it would have been nice to include some of the letters from fans and other people that um, elicited these responses and Rose's letters that coincide with with, um, Laura's responses, but that probably would have lent to a two-volume book or a seven- or eight-hundred-page book, and HarperCollins would not have gone for that kind of a book. They're a commercial publisher uh, as opposed to a scholarly publisher. And uh, although they gave me full leeway about the length of this book, I felt that 400 pages was about the max that could be feasibly done and keep it at a price that uh, the uh, reading audience would pay. So very occasionally I included... some letters, some samples of fan letters, which I thought were unique. And I included a letter from a family that had made the trek in the 1940s to Dismet and uh, a few other instances. But uh, one of the reviewers mentioned it would have been nice to have the um, both the uh, coinciding letters but it simply would have made a book that would be not feasible for a publisher to produce. We hardcore <laughs> fans would have liked that, but it just wouldn't have worked. Well, a hardcore fan things aren't always commercially viable. Uh, no. Did Were you able, though, to... Uh, there had been a separate publication of fan mail, Dear Laura. Are any of the answers to those letters? Were you able to match them up in what you were doing I was a, I was able to match some of those up. And some letters that were bequeathed to me from the Sorensen family in South Dakota. And Mrs. Sorensen grew up in DeSmet, so she really, truly knew the Ingalls family. I found some of her letters to Laura that Laura had saved. And at the time, Harper Collins brought out the um, book Dear Laura. Uh, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Home Association loaned some of the fan mail that we still have there to Harper, and they made the selection for that book Dear Laura. And when I was on a book tour for this book uh, in the spring, I met a lady from the Kansas City area who had a letter from a boy who later became an American Airlines pilot. And she was also at the conference at South Dakota State University last summer. And we found in the book, Dear Laura, his letter to her in 1949. And she now owns the letter that the pilot had entrusted with her. So it's fun to match both pieces together, like two pieces of a puzzle. It is. And it's a lot of times 
a lot clearer if you can have that before an answer. So it's it's nice that you're able to do a couple of those. And when people uh, come up to me after I've spoken here, there, and everywhere, and they'll bring their letter, they'll pull out the letter they received from Laura Ingalls Wilder, and they're very proud and sometimes kind of shy about it. But I have been able to find occasionally the letter they wrote as a child to her, and that meant a lot to them. That was very fun to match those two letters together. But the book that you mentioned, Dear Laura, which is a compilation of fan letters from kids from the 30s to the 50s, that unfortunately is out of print now. It had a small sale, but I thought it was a significant book and a very nice book. Yes, it is. I have a couple of copies. As you know, I'm a completist, so I have to get hardback and paperback of everything. Right. I'm a, I'm a little obsessed, but you know that. <laughs> but I think I think people can get this on eBay pretty easily. Yes. Yeah, it shows up pretty regularly on there. Yes, truly. So Laura Ingalls Wilder's letters to me that I compiled in this book, they are the closest thing that we have to an autobiography of her later life, knowing the fact that uh, she didn't keep journals, she didn't keep diaries. We have to infer what kind of a person she was and many of her day-to-day activities through these letters. So we wish that she'd written about every day of her life, but it didn't happen. So I hope this uh, book of her letters will sort of fill in the gaps for those who are interested. Well, I am sure it will. And uh, I just am so glad that, that you took this effort. Um, and even though the, the book is a done deal, the museums are all still looking for letters. So if anybody out there has a uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder letter that you know about. They are even interested in photocopies. If you're not, um, if you're not willing yet to part with the original, having a photocopy so at least the information is preserved is great because uh, I am sure there are letters all over the country that are you know in shoe boxes tied together or pasted into albums and as we were talking about before with the Ingalls family it's way easy uh, to have somebody else come in and not realize what they are and throw it out so uh, it is a great idea if you have a Laura letter to at least get a photocopy to any of the Laura museums they're all looking for them Uh, Rocky Ridge has uh, in their new museum has an archive. They have an archive at DeSmet. They have one at Walnut Grove and they have one at Malone um, that are are pretty well established. But any of the museums are most glad to get copies of the letters. That's a good point, Sarah. And I realized when I finalized this book, that it wasn't going to be finalized because there are always going to be new letters turning up here and there. And uh, I hope that the best of the best is in this book, The Selected Letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder. But any new correspondence that Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote is of interest to the museums and to researchers. So a good plug for historical preservation of any more of her writings that come to light. 
And uh, we mentioned a couple times that there was they were a little repetitive, a little formulaic in some parts, but there are also people who just happen to ask the right question or an interesting question that people have never uh, heard of before or that nobody, uh, no other letters showed up that talked about that. So it is really um, an important thing. Don't let the fact that she t- wrote the gingerbread recipe to people an awful lot mean that your letter doesn't have interest to people just because it has the gingerbread recipe. So keep sending those exactly. letters in. Uh, I think one of the key things that I found in fan letters, uh, people often inquire what happened to the China shepherdess figurine. And finally, I found some documentation in one of the fan letters she wrote to children in Detroit, Michigan. She said, Carrie has the China shepherdess. And uh, before, and then another letter, she mentions that Grace has the China shepherdess. So I put two and two together and realized that uh, Carrie was with Grace at the time of her death. Grace's household was broken up immediately after her death, and Carrie took home to Keystone, South Dakota, all of the important Ingalls family items, including that shepherdess. So that's where it ended up in Keystone, South Dakota. It wasn't broken, it wasn't lost, but when Carrie's home was dispersed, I'm just guessing that um, at the sale of her household, that shepherdess probably went there. It's maybe floating around in the Black Hills still. We don't know. <laughs> that's, that's such a great image. It's floating around in the Grand Yes, yeah, somewhere. <laughs> so somebody well, we, has it and doesn't know what yeah. they have. Well, that is another thing. And, and uh, since we were talking about historic preservation, even within your own families, label what things are. Because something that to you is your great-great-grandmother's glass maybe to your kids this thing that was in the way on the back of a cupboard shelf. And so it's important to make sure you keep that provenance with the things. We are almost out of time, and I hope that maybe we can have you come back sometime. But uh, just in the last couple minutes, uh, everybody should look for all of Bill's books, especially this new one, The Selected Letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And you're going to be coming to the Herbert Hoover uh, Presidential Library in West Branch on Labor Day. Do you have any other upcoming appearances or a new project that you want to just tell us about right here at the end? Well, appearances, um, Walnut Grove, Minnesota, uh, the weekend of July... Uh, 8th and 9th and 10th with Charlotte Stewart, who was Miss Beadle in the Little House show in in August, Uh, Genesee Village near Mumford, New York, um, August 6th and 7th, Hoover Presidential Library, you mentioned South Dakota Festival of the Books, the 15th, 16th, 17th of September, and uh, those are the, the nearest dates that I'm going to be out talking about this book and others. And if people want a signed copy uh, that they don't get to see you in person, can they get one? 
they I'll tell you, the publicist at HarperCollins sent me about 500 book plates, which I have signed, and I've sent those out to the various home site museums. So we always encourage people to order books and so on from the museum bookstores. So anyone can ask about getting one of those signed uh, books via the book plate. They're at all the different sites, as far as I know. Well, we are out of time right now, but I really want to thank you for coming on, Bill, and I hope that maybe you found it painless enough that we can get you to come on and talk again maybe about some of the the home sites and your involvement there. I think that would be really interesting, or anything else. Always nice to visit, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, And I should add just very quickly, you can find Bill on Facebook under William Anderson Author. And uh, uh, what's your web address? www.williamandersonbooks.com Okay. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. And uh, we want to remember that you should brighten the corner where you are and come back and join us again on Trendlebed Tales. So long, Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.